0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. I'm Faith Murphy, and this morning's scripture reading is from Acts 18, 18 18-28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took a leave from the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea he had to cut his hair because he was under a vow. And then when he came to Ephesus, he left them there and he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Then he asked to stay a period longer. He declined. But on taking leave from them, he said, I will return if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the ways of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be, Praise to, Christ. be to
0: Christ. Thanks so much, Faith. Good morning. It is so good to worship God together. Greeting to those joining in online. My name is Josiah and I am new on staff here at Christ Press serving as the director of the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. And my wife, Brittany and I and our little seven month old daughter, Shenley, we moved here from Pittsburgh just six weeks ago. And so we're having a great time. You hear those statistics that 82 people move to Nashville a day. You can figure us in with that number. And let me tell you, for once in my life, it feels great to be a statistic. Uh, We are glad to be here. If you don't know much about the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, this is a ministry of Christ pres, both for the church and for the city, to really help people live on mission in their work, in response to God's grace. That's what we're all about. And really the driving motivation for this ministry is we are convinced that God, he has called each of us who know his grace to serve him. And our service to God doesn't just take place in the church or in other places that we volunteer, but in every area of our lives. And listen to this, it is estimated that the average American will work 90,000 hours their life in a 9-to-5 job, day-to-day work. And listen to this, 84% of Christians between the ages of 18 and 29 indicate that they have no idea how the Bible relates to their field or professional life. And so let me tell you, this NIFW, Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, this is a really unique ministry. And this is what God has drawn my heart to this city to be a part of. I'm so grateful for the opportunity this is a really special community. I'm so grateful for the leaders who've come before me and the teammates I have in NIFW serving in ministry alongside me to this day. And so this morning, I am grateful as well to share God's word. I just love to speak uh, this message that God has given us in scripture. And I've spent 10 years in church ministry prior to coming here to Christ Prez. Before that, I was a college track and field and cross country coach. And so anytime I get the opportunity to share in scripture and and encourage you with that, it's just a privilege for me. I hope you get as much out of this as I have through the whole process. So why don't I pray for us and we'll get into it. Father, we are grateful for community and the opportunity to be in a room where we can look around and see others who are journeying in life and faith. And as we gather this morning, we acknowledge that God, there are some of us who are here with burdens on our hearts that we've only expressed to you or maybe God we've just wrestled with and haven't even articulated in our own minds. But God, we know that you're powerful to meet us in this time. We ask that your spirit would be present among us. God, would you speak to us in a way that doesn't only educate us, but God, that transforms us in our hearts and in the way that we live. We ask this together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. We'll take a little pause after this week to celebrate Easter, but we're tracing the story of the early church, their teaching, their stories, and seeing how God has worked in and through his people over time. And something that's really made an impression on me as we've traced this book is this is real history. There are profound stories and, and lessons that we can learn from their own experience and faith and all this took place over 2,000 years ago and certainly what we've seen throughout this is it's very relevant, the lessons that are to be learned here for you and I in our own journey of faith today, giving us a deeper understanding of what it looks like to know God, to follow him with our lives and today's passage is no exception. Our title for this morning is Jesus Needs No Wow Factor. And I wanna tell you when Scott shared with me the title for this message, it just cracked me up because it reminded me immediately of a story from my past. It was a number of years ago and it was the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter and a friend of mine, I was chatting with them and I said, hey, how was the Good Friday service at your church last night? And what they told me was the music was fine, the, the preaching was good, but to be honest, the service just lacked a wow factor. And when they said that to me, I couldn't help but feel as if I was the wrong person to be receiving that feedback. I know what they meant, that there was nothing that was wrong with the service, there was nothing that was extraordinary about it either. And certainly I'm understanding as someone who's worked in a church that we wanna communicate the gospel in a creative and engaging way, that's vitally important. But when my friend told me that, the service lacked a wow factor. I couldn't help but think to myself, yeah, the son of God coming to die on a cross to atone for the sins of the world. Nothing really exciting about that, right? Nothing too impressive there. And let me be honest, as I share that story, it feels good to be the one that for once in my life, I had the discerning perspective. The one that was, not overly concerned about the wrong things, but on track with what, 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 what matters most. It feels good to be on that side of this story, but no doubt for me as a church leader, I could tell you stories of things that I've kept inside as I've been a part of worship services, just cringing internally, wishing that things were going differently. I felt that same sentiment more times than I'd care to express. And isn't it funny, this world that we live in, that is all too easy for us to fall into because we're so often drawn toward action and excitement and what is entertaining. Listen to this, we live in a world where a study recently found that the average human attention span has fallen to 12 seconds between the year 2020, pardon me, we've fallen to 12 seconds and in the year 2000, it was eight. So we've dropped four seconds, and listen to this. This isn't exactly encouraging. It is reported that goldfish have a nine-second attention span. So we're doing worse than goldfish. (laughs) But what we see in today's passage is that the most important things in life, the most important things of God, his work in our lives, and the things that are truly able to transform us, they aren't often what is flashy, because God tends to do his most significant work inside of us in quiet moments, times where we can step away from busyness and distraction and focus our attention towards him. What we also see in this passage is that while it's easy for us to be captivated by experiences that draw us in and entertain us and engage us in a a wow sort of way and how we're drawn towards people who are impressive in their gifting, It's the truthfulness of the Christian message that we need to value the most. And so we have some great stories in today's teaching that will show us this in a profound way. I'd like us to look at this in two different sections. In the first part, chapter 18, verses 18 to 23, if you're following along in your Bible, we have the story of the Apostle Paul as we track with him in this mission to take the gospel to the nations, And in these five verses, we really cover a lot of ground. These five verses kind of read like a movie montage, one of those scenes that recaps a lot of action in a short span of time. If you think about a movie montage, I have to say my favorite are probably in the Rocky movies where we get this two-minute snapshot of the boxer played by Sylvester Stallone. You know, he always starts out kind of flabby and dejected, but somehow 80s music and some scenes of Rocky doing calisthenics in two minutes just transform him into this underdog hero ready to take on the world, right? We know that it's only Rocky's rivals who also visit the pharmacist for a little bit of enhancement. Rocky would never do that. Blue collar, baby. And so we get this montage of Paul and his missionary travels here, bridging between his second and third missionary journeys. And listen, in these five verses, it's estimated, Bible scholars estimate he traveled around 1,200 miles. And this five-verse chunk here spans around a year of time. So as a quick reminder of where Paul has been, He's found himself in Greece from Macedonia in the north to Achaia in the south, teaching about Jesus, establishing these communities around the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so now the time has come for him to pivot in his ministry, to leave Greece. And so Paul travels to the port city closest to Corinth and boards a ship heading west to Ephesus where he had previously planted a church, helped to plant a church on his first missionary journey. And what Luke tells us in chapter 18, verse 18, is that Paul, he gets this haircut before he ventures out. So I don't know about you, but you can kind of envision Paul earlier in this second missionary journey, kind of looking like a hipster, COVID beard, he's got his bluegrass musician hair going. And so now it's time for Paul to get cleaned up before journeying on to Ephesus, not just so he can look good to see his friends there, that wasn't it at all. But Paul had taken a vow and he wanted to cut his hair as an act of completion of that vow. And so it's likely that this was a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow involved abstaining from cutting one's hair for a time as well as from eating or consuming any grape products, among other things. But what's important for us to know is that this is a spiritual practice that God had given to the Israelite people in his giving of the law, the recording of the law in the book of Numbers we find this. Where a Jewish man or woman could be set apart as a special act of devotion for God for a specific time or occasion. So for Paul, this is a way of devoting his heart, turning inwardly towards God to be his supplier, the one who provided for his every need through the Spirit during his ministry along this missionary journey. And so Paul, he had this haircut now as an act of completion of having fulfilled God's call on his life for this season and what's really interesting for us to consider is this Nazarite vow this is a custom of Jewish culture hadn't Paul left that stuff behind it's kind of confusing hadn't Paul left Judaism behind and what we see here is not entirely in the sense that Paul he had an understanding that Jesus spoke in these words himself that he'd come to fulfill the law and not to erase it and so what is Paul doing here in taking this vow In this passage, we see Paul in his Christian freedom as a result of being convicted by the spirit turning to a practice of his religious heritage. It's likely Paul may even have once practiced this in a way that was more about his effort, his earning to merit God's devotion through his own self-discipline. Paul's now keeping this practice and recentering it on Christ as a way of grounding his heart in the gospel, utilizing that framework it gave him as a practice of faith. This is fascinating for us to consider. You know, some of us have come from a religious background where we could say, man, there was a season in my life where my relationship with God, my approach to faith was more about my own efforts, my own earning through self-discipline than it was resting in Jesus Christ's finished work on my behalf. And without going into too far of an aside here, we got a lot of good stuff to cover This is certainly an example that spiritual disciplines and devotion, when rightly channeled into God's grace, is an aspect of us to enjoy our relationship with him. Man, what a benefit they can be to us in our faith in Christ. Let's continue on the passage. So Paul, he's traveling from Corinth to Ephesus along with his friends and ministry partners Priscilla and Aquila. This is a couple we'll circle back around to in the second section of this passage, but what we need to know is that after a short time of effective ministry in Ephesus, Paul felt drawn to leave his friends in that city to head towards Jerusalem. It was the time of year where the Passover feast was oncoming and he wanted to celebrate with his friends there in the city. So Paul tells that community, the church there in Ephesus, I'll be back if God wills. And we will see when we pick back up with this series after Easter. God does will. For now, Paul, he journeys on to Jerusalem. And so we see he sails south across the sea there to Caesarea, the port nearest to Palestine. Travels inland to celebrate the feast. And again, Passover. This is a Jewish tradition. What's Paul doing celebrating the Passover What we need to know is that for Paul, as a Jewish believer, in that context, this was a great opportunity for witness to him, to recognize that Jesus himself had come as the ultimate Passover lamb, slain to rescue from sin and death any person who will look to him and believe. And so Paul found great meaning and opportunity for witness in celebrating that feast. Once this time is complete, he travels north to Antioch, where Paul can finally punch the odometer after that last 300 mile leg all of this in five verses 1200 miles and so Paul settles in in Antioch for a little R&R have you ever had a friend who was a missionary or maybe someone in the military who you knew came home on furlough Have you ever known someone who's come home on furlough This is Paul's time on furlough. He's got a six to nine month period of rest here in Antioch before embarking on his third missionary journey. And so you know how those furlough times go. It's likely that Paul delivered a little bit of a report to that church there in Antioch. Maybe he showed them some PowerPoint slides with pictures of people whose names they'd never remember or told them long stories about all the weird food he ate. You ever hear one of those presentations? Paul's resting here in this passage. Why do you think Luke shares about this? Certainly part of his reason in sharing about this season is to set up Paul for what happens next and making the transition there to ministry in Ephesus we'll see in chapter 19. But I think there's also something to be said for the example we receive here of how even the Apostle Paul, a man whose leadership and teaching An influence God used to change the world and is still using to impact the world today, 2,000 years later. Even for Paul, the grind needed to stop sometimes because after the hustle of travels, of planning churches, going from city to city, meeting new people, speaking to crowds, even Paul, he needed moments of rest for physical and spiritual and emotional recharge Paul needed to rest he needed it personally and the integrity the effectiveness of his ministry in the future also depended on it and when I reflect on this part of the passage a statement I often heard one of my seminary professors Dr. Rodney Cooper comes to mind This is something he would share with my pastoral ministry capstone course when I was finishing seminary. He would tell us again and again, God has made us to be human beings, not human doings. And our most effective ministry will come not from what we do, but from who we are. And as a doer, every time I heard him say that, I felt nailed to the wall. Because the reality is, for me, and you, and the Apostle Paul, being rooted in a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ is probably the most important thing we can do to set ourselves up to serve God in our world effectively. And the simple reality is it's really hard for us to do that when we are distracted or drained. And like I said, this can be really hard for us because in the fallenness that each of us have inherited from our first parents Adam and Eve we have a tendency inside of us to live as if the world and our future what we believe would be best to happen it lies on our own shoulders we're really effective at internalizing those burdens aren't we you know one of the programs we offer through the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is called the Gotham Fellowship and this is an eight month program that helps people learn to think well about faith and work and consider how we as followers of Jesus Christ can bring God's redemption to brokenness in our own field or areas of work. Are there any Gotham alums out there? Any Gotham fellows? Yeah this is a really impactful program for those who take part and this past week in our class we were working through a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. And what this book's really about is how our everyday everyday routines create opportunities for us to worship God when we set our attention toward him. And in one section of the book, Warren is talking about how our approach to work and our human need for rest present us with this dilemma about how our sin nature and what is best for us is often so hard for us to navigate and, and living in This world, and these words really made an impact on me. Listen to this. She writes Self sufficiency and self reliance are engines of the American dream. However, we are not sufficient. We need a caretaker, and this must affect our bodily routines, our worship, and our view of God. Our culture of restlessness and limitlessness has shaped our faith. As Americans and as evangelicals, the subtle idea that our relationship with God relies on our own efforts and energy is part of our DNA. The idea that our bodies don't matter and that limits are simply obstacles to be overcome misshapes our understanding of worship and mission. And so what she's putting a finger on with this is that question, how Do we rest when this mindset of self-sufficiency comes so naturally to us? And what Warren would suggest is that the answer is really found in returning to the truth. Rooting ourselves in the reality of who God is and who we are. That as beings made in his own image, we're not to live as if we're the God over our own lives. We've been made to reflect God not only in his creative and sustaining efforts, But also to reflect God in his pausing, his resting to take joy in creation and find refreshment in it. And ultimately when you and I make this a practice in our lives, it has a way of recalibrating us again according to the way that God has made us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, when we rest with our attention towards God, we're reminded, and in, in not just our minds, but in our hearts, that he is a safe place for us to turn. He is our creator and our sustainer. But this does require time and space. And what we see in this text is that the kind of rest we really need, it's not just about turning off our email and sitting in the sand drinking a beer and listening to Zach Brown band. Though I am for all of those things. What we really need to do is to plug into the one who made us and find our source of strength in him and so this is something that we can certainly do in these kind of extended periods of way, like Paul away like Paul finds here, or we can create in our own lives with moments of vacation where we also bring in those sort of spiritual habits that can refocus us, but this is also something we can do on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. This is what we're doing right now, my friends. This is part of why we gather to worship, because when we come into a room like this, and we hear God's word as we celebrate communion together, as we hear the word, we are recalibrated in our perspective, not just our mental understanding, but in our heart posture, and that impacts us in the way that we live together as a community, and in the places that God has sent us to live out his mission as individuals. part of why we join together in this time. It resets us in the way that we live our lives. This is also why we make such a big deal of prayer and Bible reading around here, because these are disciplines, daily routines that recenter us around the truth, because God has made us as human beings, not human doings. Our most impactful ministry comes not from what we do, but who we are. And that kind of deep abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, it can't be fake. So I wonder what's on your mind as as God's speaking to you in this moment. Is there a practice that you'd do well to cultivate in your own life, maybe on a daily basis? Maybe this is a season where you're feeling God's draw on, on you to participate in a group setting where you can find some community and support in that whole process yourself. Those would be great ways to really engage. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. I'd encourage you to stop by our welcome desk. Those folks will be really well equipped to help you find a place to join in community here at the church because we are partners to one another in this mission. Why don't we look at the second part of this passage? This is really the story of Apollos and his Genesis story as a leader in the early church. What we see is that while Paul is going about his travels taking a little bit of R&R, Apollos comes to serve the church in Ephesus in a way that's making quite an impression. And Luke tells us a few noteworthy things here in this passage beginning in verse 24. And the first is that Apollos was from Alexandria. And Alexandria was a city in Egypt that was regarded as a center for Greek culture, for thought and education in its day and so Apollos was certainly an accurate representative of this city. He was well regarded as a thoughtful teacher. He was knowledgeable of the Hebrew Bible. This made him particularly effective serving in a city like Ephesus that was diverse in thought and belief in its day. Second, Apollos had knowledge and passion around the message of Jesus Christ. So he didn't just know his Hebrew Bible, he was well familiar with the story of Jesus He taught accurately about him and what we also see is that no one fell asleep on the weekends that Apollos was preaching. Luke says he spoke with eloquence and boldness and with a fervency of spirit or fervency in the spirit. That phrase could also be interpreted there in verse 25. You could sense God's presence in Apollos' teaching and this is a man who is gaining a following. But we also see in the text there's one problem noteworthy thing about Apollos number three there was a missing element in his message and so much so that Priscilla and Aquila this couple who the apostle Paul was friends with we heard about earlier in the passage Priscilla and Aquila when they hear Apollos speak they notice there's a missing ingredient in his gospel recipe we don't get 100% clarity about what this was in the text but that It had something to do with Apollos knowing only the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. And it seems contradictory that Luke would say that Apollos only knew of the baptism of John and not the baptism of Jesus Christ, a baptism of repentance that foreshadowed how Jesus Christ himself would come through his death and resurrection to make a way for all who repent to share in eternal life with God, united to him forever. It seems contradictory that Apollos wouldn't have knowledge of that baptism of Jesus Christ if he was one who taught about Jesus accurately. And so as a result of this apparent contradiction, there are some scholars who believe it's likely Apollos had the basics of the gospel correct, but he had just missed out on how Jesus had commissioned his followers for a ministry of their own. Ascended into heaven and given the spirit to help them live that mission out. Whatever the case is, it's, it's clear that there's important content around the message of Jesus. Apollos was missing. And so a Pr- Priscilla and Aquila, they, they step up here. And I need to point out, this is a really cool picture of the kingdom of God that every time this couple is mentioned in scripture except for when they're first introduced, it's in a way that's absolutely countercultural in their day as well as our own with her first and him second. And I heard Pastor Micah Edmondson from our Koinonia campus say it earlier this week in, in this way that this is like a couple being introduced as hey, this is Mrs. and Mr. Lewenberger. Again, that's my last name. I know it's one that just keeps going. Mrs. and Mr. Wouldn't that be very strange if you met a couple who introduced themselves in this way? This is not common to us. Why do you think Luke does this in his writing? This is no error. Priscilla was a key leader in the early church, gifted and called for the ministry that she had fulfilled. She made a significant impact. And so what's really neat is both Luke and Paul refer to this couple in this way, Priscilla and Aquila. And this is, again, absolutely countercultural, but it's a way of affirming and honoring Priscilla, the contributions that she had made to the ministry of the church. And so how do they handle this moment, this issue of doctrinal correction with Apollos? We see it there. They invite him to their home to, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. They invite them to their home and explain to him the way of God more accurately, Two great lessons in here as we close and the first comes from Apollos' example. Think back to our title, Jesus Needs No Wow Factor. Why does Jesus need no wow factor? We see it right here because Jesus himself is the wow factor. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 6. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel is not about our human strength or excellence, but it's about God's power to meet us in our weakness and give us new life and use us for ways that would go so far beyond what could ever happen in our own humanity. And so what Apollos' story here shows us is that a Christian leader could be the smartest or the most gifted, the most passionate person you've ever met but if the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins risen from the grave filling all of us who would believe in him for lives of mission in response to the grace the new life we've received if that's not present inside of us no matter how entertaining that message may be no matter how educationally informative it might be all those gifts all that information. It can only amount to an unhelpful distraction because the power of the gospel is the truthfulness of the message that's communicated, not the gifts or the passion of the communicator. Let me tell you, this is something that I need to hear, something I need to be reminded of. The most important thing that anyone in ministry can do is point people towards the message of Jesus Christ. It's not about what we can manufacture through our own efforts or humanity. And certainly, this is helpful for me to hear and uh, maybe even for you to consider, as someone who's a consumer of Christian teaching or music or culture and the things that you allow to give voice to your life, be very discerning about the message that's delivered. Is it one that lifts us up and makes a big deal of our own efforts? or is it something that drives us to Jesus and all that's communicating? And last, this section of the passage just gives us a great model for how doctrinal correction in the church best takes place. And that's how Priscilla and Aquila, when they notice Apollos is off in his teaching, how do they respond? Again, they don't rip him apart in a public Q&A. They don't write a blog post calling him out for all the areas he's wrong. When they discern that his teaching is incomplete, they have the courage to bring clarity around the gospel. Even if it creates an uncomfortable situation, they take that responsibility clearly They take it seriously, pardon me, to bring clarity around the gospel message that's vitally important. But rather than enjoying an ego trip as a result of being the ones who called out Apollos for his poor theology, rather than treating him as an enemy, they show him friendship. They treat him with respect and hospitality. They invite him into their safe place, their own home, where they help him to understand the message of Jesus more fully. What a beautiful Model for us in thinking about what doctrinal correction in the church should look like, that when we recognize a missing ingredient in someone's gospel recipe, it's always worth a conversation. No matter how uncomfortable, it's always worth a conversation, because the gospel's worth it. But treating our family members in Christ with respect and kindness. And those moments lay so much better of a foundation for growth and understanding to, tame put to take place than any sort of gotcha moment will ever be able to deliver. And as a result of the way that Priscilla and Aquila handle this with Apollos, this man was able to learn from the experience and move forward. In ministry, with the full support of the church, he ventured on to Corinth where he served in an effective season of ministry. And by God's grace, Paul himself would later speak of Apollos' role in building the church by saying, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it and God has made it grow. There are some scholars throughout church history who even believe that Apollos is the man who wrote the letter of the Hebrews. This book that's made such an impact on many of us is a result of the way that Apollos is someone who knew both the philosophy of his day from Greek culture as well as the Hebrew scripture. The book of Hebrews presents that in a powerful and unique way. It's a great example Priscilla and Aquila give us. And in a culture where people tend to either shame those who get The message that they perceive to be most important incorrect such as our own or in a culture where people can tend to avoid conflict altogether and in so doing minimize the truth. My hope is that we'll here at Christ Press be a people who would follow in the example of Priscilla and Aquila. May we be people who love the gospel enough that we are willing to engage in challenging and difficult conversations because the truth of our faith is worth it. But may we be so taken by the grace that we've received. May we be so taken by the generosity of God that even our most uncomfortable moments together will give those who don't know the grace that is in Jesus something of a taste of his hope that is offered to each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the word of truth that we receive here. We thank you that you speak to us in a way that's powerful to transform us from the inside out. God, in this message of grace and truth that we've looked at today, would you help us to be people who recognize that your gospel is worth it. God, that it is valued more than anything else that we can encounter in this world. God, would we be people who represent your message accurately in all that we do? in this community, God, and in our own lives with the words we speak and the way that we would conduct ourselves. God, we thank you for the grace that is all-sufficient that you pour out over us, that in our weakness we are strong because you sustain us in all things. And God, would we be people who point others towards that? God, not because we always get it right, but because you've gotten it right on our behalf. And Father, this is our hope, in Jesus whose name we pray, amen.